Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome once again to Redemption Meditations. Steve, that would be Dana. a great spot. Hold on, that would be a great spot for like one of those pow pow uh, sound effects, <laughs> <clears throat> like an old the old Batman. Yeah, uh, if only James Smith were here, nice. could have filled that in. Yeah, pow. Post production edits are That's required. Right. Get that to our get that to our tech guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Let's get the tech guy on that. Um, yeah. So for, uh, well, first of all, how are you gentlemen this evening? As I'm doing we... great. Okay. Yeah, I'm well. I'm well. So glad. So glad to hear. Toast to your health. Um, <laughs> for, for anybody, for anybody who, who saw, and as long as, as long as I don't get any fight, the, the title of this episode should be St. Nick a pugilist <laughs> and uh this this was a uh this was a topic that came from from my teeming brain and everybody was gracious enough to go with it um so as we record now tis the season for many things uh it's, it's christmas time we're approaching christmas and if you spend any amount of time on uh reformed groups on facebook or elsewhere or any christian meme page you're going to be deluged with certain memes of saint nick santa claus himself punching the heretic Arius. uh i've already seen plenty of those this season i'm sure there's more to come and i thought i think it would be interesting to talk about this story because um i dig church history uh, that's another thing we all have in common and uh, I think it could be worthwhile to kind of pick apart this story and and discuss it a little bit and what its relevance might be uh, to us today so far removed from from these times. Without any objection, I will proceed. Yeah, there's no objection. So noted. <laughs> proceed. All right. Would anyone like to give a little uh, little thumbnail of this uh, story that we're talking about? the lead up to the punch heard around the world. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll give a, a, a very quick gist of this and then I'll let you guys expound uh, on, on my little bit here. So many, many years ago, uh, the, the year 325, I believe you guys can correct me if Something I'm, like that. if I'm wrong on that. Um, there was this guy named Arius. And at the time, there was a lot of discussion. Yeah, he's the bad guy in our he's story. He's the heel in this, boys and in girls. this wrestling okay. story. Uh, yeah, he's the bad guy. So uh, the, the, the gist of it is this is a time when there's a lot of, there, there's some confusion and controversy about the nature of Christ, who, or, and we might even say what he is, and especially in relation to the Father. So there's, this argument that this man Arius made, which and the gist of it, this is a major oversimplification. You guys can expound on this as you see fit. But the gist of it is that essentially Christ was created. There was some time when he was not, and then he was created and was. And and that is directly linked to, and, and because of that, he's really not made of, this is, I'm going to use this terminology to help us understand this is this, you know, so if we think, if we think of God as being made of stuff, whatever that is, 
Arius's argument was that Jesus is not made of the same stuff that the Father is. Now, God's spirit and doesn't have a body, so that analogy fails pretty quickly. But the important distinction here is that Arius is saying, whatever the Father is, Jesus is eh, something else, right? He's uh, he's a creation. Uh, he may be the highest creation, but he's a creation. He's not the father in, in, in the same sense. So that went over about as well as you might think with many of our heroes in the fourth <laughs> century. Um, and one and, and our one hero in particular is this uh, man, St. Nicholas. Oh, oh, oh. Whoa. exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Who was known for giving gifts to children. It's, it's, you know, yeah. there's some tie in here. But he was having none of this heresy. This did not go over big with him. And he was so, so the legend goes, so enraged by somebody suggesting that somehow Jesus is just not God the way the father is, that he stood up, walked across the room and uh, gave him a big old knuckle sandwich. Now, uh, <laughs> that that's the legend anyhow. Um, so, so with laying down that groundwork, I will, uh, I will pass the, the hand the floor over to you back to you gentlemen so so there's a there's a when it comes to uh nicholas so it's nicholas of myra right it's the bishop right. of myra which is on the coast of turkey and um gobble, gobble. modern day turkey and um uh there's a lot obviously there's a lot of legend attached to him he's probably uh, the most in our day, the most, at least one of the top, top 10, um, uh, maybe top five, top three saints, um, early church fathers in that, in that era that people have heard of, even though they have no idea who he is. Um, so, so he, uh, there, so there's a lot of legend attached to it. Um, the, the whole Santa Claus um, mythology is really finds its roots back in him and so um obviously so saint nicholas saint jolly old saint nick right um uh the the center clause clause i think is the second half of nicholas Nic mm -hmm. Nic Nicolas. Yeah. so so the um would that be G the german um mm -hmm. finds its roots in yeah. germany um uh, dutch and oh, dutch. dutch yeah yeah okay so it takes the the saint and the Claus Nicholas, mm -hmm. um, and and kind of puts that together, Sin and, and it becomes Sinterklaas. Sinterklaas, right? And so, so all of these, um, Chris Kringle is tied into that somehow. <clears throat> I can't even remember um, how it all ties together, but it really all finds its roots. It's a mythology that's developed over time in different cultures that uh, finds e its roots. Even the red and white suit is uh is based on the uh, bishop's garb from the day which was a red and white robe with a hat that was also red and white yeah so so it all of that that kind of mythology that we have today of santa claus um finds its roots in this story and steve even mentioned that he was um he did give gifts to children and there's some there's some unknowns there um, it's a significant amount of unknowns. Um, it is uh, probable that he inherited some money 
Um, mm-hmm. It's possible his parents were wealthy, and he so he inherited an estate, and he and as a minister of the gospel, he used that money to to support orphans. Or to, there's some legends attached to that as well. Um, but that's kind of where the myth of Santa develops from, mm-hmm. and um, it's it's really a fascinating story because when you think about the Council of Nicaea. Um, uh, you know, trying to determine, they needed to come up with a statement. So they did the Nicene Creed, right? They needed to come up with a statement that addressed who Jesus was. So that's the, that's the, um, that's why we know of him, uh, in this story of, you know, um, uh, tossing his holy hand grenades at, at, uh, uh, Areas, you know that that's why we know of him because he supposedly was so um, adamant that for the for the holiness of Christ that when he heard Arius talk, um, he couldn't take it and he and he slapped him or or hit him or or, or whatever. Um, I never heard that story until maybe five or six years ago. Had you guys heard that a long time? Like, had you heard of that a long time ago? Yes, but I'm also weird. So I, I had a I had a period where I was especially intrigued with like the Eastern Orthodox like communions. And a lot of our history about St. Nicholas comes out of the East because that was where he was. He was in Turkey. Yeah. And so there's lots of stories about St. Nicholas in various histories. And here's part of the problem. Histories and hagiographies of the east so the east is especially prone to something called hagiography which is taking a story about a person who existed but maybe embellishing them to the point that they become not exactly historically true but (laughs) but are miraculous nonetheless miraculous sounding uh so it's sort of like turning a turning a real life uh saint into a superhero kind of kind of a thing um and so sometimes peeling away those layers of uh, of fantastical, um, non-historical aspects of these stories can be a little difficult. Um, and, and many people say that this story uh, has part of that um, involved in it. Um, uh, yeah, so, so historians of, of the East uh, have been talking about it. This is actually a matter of iconography even um, for many uh, Eastern, of many Orthodox Christian traditions um they'll often show him without the the bishop's mitre and um in the certain dress because the the legend also says that after striking arius he was defrocked for a time and then had a had a vision where his his bishopric was restored to him by um by mary actually but mary and christ that's not how this works. That's not how I was with you until then. You had the hook, line, and sinker until that's that's some hagiography <laughs> right there. That's a great example of hagiography. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and, and and the development. So that's an interesting point because the development also of um, uh, saints in that both Eastern and uh, Roman Catholic tradition of of of. Um, saints being special you know as opposed to like the yeah yeah and as opposed to the saints is the way the bible presents them which is anyone who is trusted in christ um 
that idea of the saints being uh, yeah lifted high, and and then the then you have this development of the patron saint of mm-hmm. certain groups of people, and because of the probably the hagiography, because of the legend and the myth that was developing around this one guy, everybody wanted him to be their patron patron saint, mm-hmm. and so if you look. I, I briefly looked at even his um, the Wikipedia page. There's a list of what he's the who he is the patron saint of. There's like a hundred different mm-hmm. groups of people, um, and it's everything from like I think sailors is one of them, right? Or sailors um, is a major one. Yeah, and the, tell and me the one city- of them is boxers, please. <laughs> <laughs> the patron saint of <laughs> MMA. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So. So uh, that's actually important in the spreading of the mythology because he was in a um, a coastal kind of a wealthy town that was a a trade port, uh, Myra, where he served. And so after he's gone, the legend starts to grow and sailors adopt him as their patron saint, spread the legend around the world as well. Um, and so, so it becomes this whole thing. And so other that's where you get like the Dutch and, and um, uh, the Germans and, and, and eventually in the English and, and Coca-Cola. You have these whole groups of people that pulls St. Nicholas into their Christmas tradition. Um, and it becomes a whole becomes a whole thing. But, but there's actually uh, maybe this is a little bit left field. But there's actually some fascinating um, syncretism of other myths into that myth. Like in the is it the night uh, what is it the night before Christmas? Mm-hmm. That story. Mm-hmm. He's he's an elf, mm-hmm. and and um, it's you know eight tiny reindeer. The the thing says and, and that whole um, Nordic elf tradition, right? Yeah, which is a very pagan. Um, you know that. That's not just a cute little thing. Like that's a whole yeah. pagan type of. <laughs> it's actually demonic, <laughs> but it pulls. But it pulls all of that in and and puts this this one bishop from you know the four hundred the three hundreds. It puts him as um, I, don't, I don't know what the right word is, but as their hero, their patron mm-hmm. saint, and. Um, and popularizes him and makes this whole myth, um, which is, I don't know, it's just, it's all kind of fascinating because of the Christian roots and the roots in the Nicene Creed that developed out of that that time period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There, there's something fascinating even to us about the, the picture we have in modern day, you know, Western society of Santa Claus. Yeah popping somebody in the chops who's blaspheming the deity of the God. I don't know why that is so just delicious to us. Probably it might not be something particularly good, but there is something that we're all like, oh man, that is such a good legend. I want it to be true. Right. It's like yeah. if it's like if somebody was blaspheming Christ and grandma punched him in the face, right? There's some part of you that's like, that's right. You know? I, I don't I don't know why that is, but it's for sure like we all kind of want to ch- there's some part of us that kind of wants to cheer for that a little bit. And I don't well, you know, I, I don't know. I, 
totally why, but I, can, I'll take a stab at it because I think, especially for maybe my my generation of of reformed kids out here how, kicking it in the streets, you know, um, <laughs> we've kind of inherited a you know uh, a um, a church culture that's a little namby pamby, right? Little little meek and mild to little yeah. too too meek and mild. Uh, yeah. And so I think I think um, a lot of folks, and I'm not just saying people my age, but um, lots of folks, especially in the reformed world, are 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 happy to be reminded that there are things important enough to fight about, um, <laughs> even if it came down to uh, to a, a punch or maybe a firm slap, uh, which it kind of goes back and forth in the historical record. Uh, right. without chalk, unlike the professional slap people that you might see on ESPN, the Ocho <laughs> old school slap fight, <laughs> old school slapping. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, I think that might be why, by the resurgence, especially in Christian meme culture. Like I just saw one the other day, it was, it was the icon of the Eastern icon, you know, that, that certain look that they have of St. Nicholas. And they had put in meme text at the bottom, Ho ho homo usias. Because <laughs> that gets back to what you were saying, Steve, about the nature of Christ. It was a it was a fight between the word homo usias, same essence, and then homoi usias. So just one extra letter, homoi usias, which is similar essence. And there's a world of difference between those two, those two concepts. And so that whole debate over one letter in one word, right, comes down to this event of the slap heard around the world or punch heard around the world, whatever you want to call it. So yeah. I guess before I before I move on to our next point, I guess I would take an informal poll. Do you guys think this event actually happened in history? Go ahead, Steve. <laughs> I mean, I obviously we have no idea. I want to believe. I want, I want it to have happened, right? Uh, there it is, right over Dana's shoulder. I, I want, want to, believe. to believe. I I want to believe that it happened, just because, like I said, for some reason, it's it just, and probably for the reasons you explained, Lee, the the idea that we're not going to find a happy middle ground on the substance of who Christ is, right? This is one of those hills we're going to plant our flag in the ground and we'll die here yeah whatever it and if we need to ruffle some feathers and upset you okay like this is one this isn't the color of the carpet this is uh too big a deal yeah we, we'll just you know yeah, what, whatever the red this hymnal means, or the green hymnal right, right. we'll take right. whatever the accept the the uh consequences are of holding fast to this without compromise so that's my way of uh not answering your question <laughs> i hope it's true so i i also hope it's true or i i want to believe i want to believe it's true but i also have a couple of reservations um so i agree with everything as steve just said i actually think it probably didn't happen um just in doing a little bit of research so so i said i i'd never even heard the story until like five years ago and then I never heard that it might not be true until like earlier this year. And so I did just a little bit of looking and, and uh, who we don't know. We, we yeah. do not know. 
And I don't think we can know. Um, he uh, apparently he, there are lists of the bishops who were there and he's not on the list. Mm -hmm. And so people are therefore saying, you know, I checked the list twice and he is not there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, so I'm, not sure. <laughs> I'm not I'm not sure if he if he is or not or was or not. Um, and, and a part of me want, wants to believe, but also um if he was defrocked after that's probably just because mm -hmm. um you you uh labeled this episode you know saint nick the the pugilist right um and if you read in um so of the qualifications for an elder which a bishop is an elder um in fact we would say so overseer is the modern language for bishop and we would say it's the same office. Um, and, and 1 Timothy chapter 3 says that he is, so the ESV puts it like this, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. So the word violent, mm -hmm. um, in the King James, it actually says, not a striker. <laughs> oh. so, uh, <laughs> Ouch. Not, so 1 Timothy 3, 3 in the King James says, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, um, but patient, not a brawler, but covetous. So not a striker, not a brawler. We don't think he was a brawler. That's not right. what we're saying. Even if he did hit the guy or slap the guy or, you know, whatever. We're not saying he's out there, like, looking for a fight. That's what a brawler <laughs> is. Um, Got his brass the, knuckles out at the, at the church council. <laughs> <laughs> Let's step outside. Um, the the Nasby actually uses that word um a, a form of the like pugilist so not addicted to wine or pugnacious oh and, and so that's what i was looking man. for my nasby um yeah so so a, a pastor an elder a bishop an overseer is not someone who is prone to fight um you know and i don't i'm not saying one slap means that he is you know prone to fight mm -hmm. um and i still want to believe it because there are times <laughs> when we want people mm -hmm. to say this is so important mm -hmm. i will give up my office to defend this doctrine yeah, yeah. um and uh um you know if if a heretic came into our church and got up and was making that argument in a, in a debate like that yeah I don't know that any of us would be justified slapping him. No. You, you know what I mean? We might shut his mic off. We might interrupt him and say, no, no more of this. But to slap him, I'm not sure. But I love the story. You know, yeah. and I, I love especially the, the fact that he has turned into jolly old Saint Nick. <laughs> you know? uh, I mean, I love that part of the story. But the, the real important part is whether it's true or not, um, the idea behind it is that he is he will do anything to defend the faith, mm -hmm. yeah. right? To, to, to stand up for the doctrine of who Christ is, yeah. that he is very God of very God. Uh, so I, I am quite dubious of the story as well, but I do like it. Uh, again, I, I like you guys, I would wish for it to be true. Uh, <laughs> but I, I actually, what's interesting is I think it's, so don't don't throw stones yet, but I think it, I think it's true, but perhaps on a metaphorical level. 
Oh, so. man. <laughs> Go ahead. Are you tracking with me? <laughs> We're tracking with you. <laughs> so, like, so here's my theory. So Saint Saint Nicholas, uh, like, had you as you had said, Dana, how he had become like patron saint of like a hundred occupations. Like everybody mm. wanted him on their side. So in a very real sense, I, I would say at that time, Saint Nicholas basically represented like the church, like correct uh, orthodox teaching as in like biblically correct, you know, um, was sort of the guy, you know, the guy who was like, this is the guy that, that is, is pro Christ. Um, and I do think in Nicaea is, you know, the exemplar of it, that um, Orthodox Trinitarian theology, right. That Christ is the same of the same essence as the father, uh, the later revision, which I know made made the East very mad, but making sure that also that the Holy Spirit proceeds not just from the father, but from the son as well is mm -hmm. a very necessary and good addition um, yeah. and makes for a solid Trinitarian formulation uh, that is respect. It respects the text of scripture and is easy enough to understand. Anyway, th that absolutely pile drives um, Trinitarian heresies, not just Arius's, there were also others, um, but that, that formulation uh, that language that was given at Nicaea uh, essentially does kind of punch the lights out of heresy, <laughs> you know? And so, yeah, so maybe literal St. Nicholas didn't punch literal Arius, Arius in, the, in the face. But I do think the Trinitarian truth that St. Nicholas stood for did very much punch the errant Trinitarian formula that Arius stood for. And even though that error still persists in, in a few different ways, even in our times, biblical Orthodox Trinitarianism wins, uh, wins the fist fight every time, I guess. Um, and I, so I do see benefit to the story on that level. Uh, and especially, and I think it's especially good to be reminded of this at this time of year, because if, if Jesus is not of the same essence as the Father, co-equal, co-eternal, um, with the same level of authority uh, over all creation, the incarnation then means something completely different if he's not that. Uh, we get we get a, a false sense of, of what the incarnation actually is um, if we don't know Christ in his eternality the way that he properly is, I guess. All right, yeah. now throw your stones. Am I, am I way off? No, I think uh, I think you could be right on there. I think it speaks to we like the story because one of the things it reminds us of is that if you're if you're going to be a church leader, then you have certain responsibilities, and one of them is not to just sort of tolerate wolves in the in the sheep pen, right? We, we don't. We don't do that. It doesn't mean that you run, you chase out the door, anybody, any unbeliever. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about someone who's going to come and spiritually prey upon the people we're charged to, to care for and shepherd. So if somebody walked into our church and was actively, aggressively discipling the people we're responsible for, toward some direction, like maybe Jesus Christ isn't really God, 
we're not going to smack them in the face, but that's going to get addressed like right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. That we're not going to just, this is not about, well, let's have a debate. No, we're not going to have a debate about it. That person is going to be gone. Mm-hmm. Right. Like that's not, this is not where you're going to come and harvest people away from the one true God. Right. That's right. The, you've come to the wrong shop for that. And so it, it, part of it is appealing because there's something comfort in knowing that your leaders are on duty mm-hmm. and they're yep. going to protect you. And they, they take that seriously. We like that. We, that's yep. a good thing. We should like that. Yep. Yeah. And it's, it, uh, it's not a, um, it, it's, it's not a minor doctrine either. Like we, th- these are not things that we, there are lots and lots of things that that as in a church right that, that we can disagree on um this is not something that we can disagree on the the nature of the trinity the the um uh the divine essence right it, it's not something that we can disagree on and in, in fact the 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 nicene creed developed um you know it developed through those councils that we're talking about council of nicaea the Nicene Creed um, is a is a confession of faith um, that is uh, universal in the West, right? Like, mm-hmm. y- y- if you're going to be a Christian, you have to hold to this. And except for that one little phrase, and the sun that Lee mm-hmm. talked about, it's universal in the West and the East. Yeah. You know, the East would hold to everything except mm-hmm. for that one little phrase. Which is not a minor point. It is right. a major point that that's a big uh, issue. That was of division. a worthy divide, <laughs> right? But they also believe that that Jesus is God, mm-hmm. right? That that part, very God of very God, yeah. that, that part of the that's only the part that they would disagree on. Um, so, so we're talking about all Christians in order to be a Christian have to hold on to this um, this statement, right? The the, mm-hmm. the this creed. We believe this, and if you don't believe that, uh, it makes you, by definition, the church has said historically, it makes you not a Christian. Yeah. If you if you don't, so so Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons who do not believe, you know, those statements about Jesus Christ are not Christians. We can say that definitively because they don't believe those things. Yeah, if, uh, if if we were going to implement some theological triage, this is a first order yes. issue. This is yeah. not Bingo. secondary. We can disagree, but eh, you know, or or third order. This is right at the top. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And and that's why creeds are important. Um, creeds are um, are are good, solid, and concise. Um, descriptions of biblical doctrine. So they're made to be learned. They're made, honestly, to be memorized. Um, and they're a good way of distilling the entire counsel of God, especially on these particular issues, into a concise, recitable um, work. Um, and they're very helpful. I, they're they're super helpful. And and there, there's a whole bunch of creeds. Um, I mean, well, not a whole bunch. There there are a bunch of creeds: the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, um, Chalcedonian Creed. There's the Nation uh, Creed. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a bunch of them, and and they're all they were. What's really interesting about them is when you start looking at church history, they were developed 
because of a controversy that came up, right? So, mm-hmm. so as the church grew and started to spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, as as it got into the ends of the earth, as the church continued to spread, um, and then you had people like Arius. So you have some false teachers coming in, which the apostles warned us, Paul and John and Peter in particular warned us about. Um, so these false teachers come in to try and lead people astray. The, 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 the church leaders, the elders, the bishops, the pastors, they had to come together and say, what do we hold in common about this t- controversial issue? So in this case, it was about um, the, the, about Christ himself. So what do we believe about Christ? And so, for example, there's not much about the Holy Spirit in the Nicene Creed. Mm-hmm. because that wasn't the controversy of the day it was right. jesus that was the controversy of the day so yeah. so the the church would develop a little bit later when other um uh, controversies came on they would come together again and and hash it out mm-hmm. and argue and and have speeches and search the scriptures and pray and all of that and then they would come out with a statement that they could all agree on um and probably i think probably the most um, correct me if I'm wrong, guys. Probably the most comprehensive creed is the Athanasian Creed, right? Oh yeah. Is that? Is that... Oh yeah. I would totally yeah. agree. Yeah. It's long. It's longer than the other creeds. Uh, yeah. It goes into more depth of detail, not only on Christ, but then on on the Trinity, um, each person of the Trinity as well. So, um, yeah. It's it's not a long piece of writing, but it is a longer creed. Yeah. Um, it's yeah, I think you brought up, uh, I, Dana, you brought up a good point that when we look at creeds and even confession, historic confessions, everything in those is is for usually for a reason. They're trying to deal with whatever the issue of the day is. And some of those we read and we're like, why is this in here? That is a weird thing to say. <laughs> why does this say the color of the carpet has to be red? <laughs> yeah. So, so, but at the time it was... A really big deal so if you imagine like if we if we had the redemption bible church first uh confession right uh, of of 2024 we're probably going to address in detail some issues that if people read it 500 years ago they'd be like what in the world this goes on for pages about stuff who doesn't know that right and maybe lord willing 500 years from now people might read it and go yeah this goes on for like 10 pages about this and that. That's like, this is not a thing. Well, today it's a thing. Mm-hmm, and yeah. so when we look back on confessions, uh, you know, from the 17th century and, and, and there's lots of them, right? We could go yeah. through them all. And some of them we're going to read and just go, what in the world? This, it was a big deal. They had a reason yeah. for it. It was a big yeah. deal then. And very often it, is addressing first order this is a huge problem you're not a christian if you hold to these things and so we're going to sit down here with our quill and pen or uh word you know and and do some work here and really defining this strictly because these are where people could go astray we got to fix this we got to address this yeah i'm sure those guys would never have considered people signing uh declarations about uh a man being a man and a woman being a woman, for example, right? And That's what marriage is. That is yeah. a great example. Yeah. We, we, so in twenty, 
uh, what year was it when the Obergefell decision came down? 2017 or 16? I don't 15, remember. Uh, I think it was 15. 15. Yeah, 15. We, we actually, in our church bylaws, um, and uh, so statement of faith and bylaws, so our constitution, we actually adopted a statement of marriage to define what marriage was because the world is saying that, you know, it can be homosexual. So two and now more, but at the time, two people of the same sex can marry. And we had to come down and say, okay, for 2000 years, we haven't had to explain this longer than 2000 <laughs> years, but yeah. like since, since the time of Christ, we have not had to explain this all of humanity, at least in the Western world, right? Everybody that's been influenced by Christianity understands what marriage is, but now we have to define it. Yeah. It, it seems so foolish, um, especially in 2015, but in 2023, we almost have to, we haven't done this. <laughs> we have to define what a man is yeah. and what yeah. a woman is, right? I yeah. mean, people are having to define that. We're just saying- Wholesale cultural rejection of natural law. Right, right. Yeah. So, so creeds and confessions are important. And can we just, we just, there's a little bit of a difference between a creed and a confession. Yes. Yeah. So can, we, we've kind of put them together and they're, a lot of the purposes are together, but can you just, um, what do you guys, like, what is the creed and what is the confession? Like, what's the, what's the difference? Yeah. A creed is, is a, is a, um, a, a more universal statement on a particular topic or issue. Uh, a confession is more something for a particular denomination, and it goes into a lot more detail on a lot more theological topics. So, like, for example, you know, the 1689 uh, Second London Baptist Confession of Faiths. So this is a confession for Baptists um, in that, in a way that the, the, um, the Nicene Creed is a creed that should be confessed by every Christian. Uh, not every Christian is going to sign on uh, with the 1689 or the Westminster or three forms of unity or the Dutch Reformed crowd, um, but they are necessary explanations of the particular doctrine of that denomination or group of Christians. Um, so it's a little it's a little more specialized. It's less it's less Catholic. It, we might say less broad and Small universal. C. Yeah, <laughs> my war is still on word. to take that. It's actually back. not a curse word. But go ahead. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so I, that, that would be my explanation. Um, yeah, yeah, I think it's I think it's important. So creeds in the in the context of the church, um, the 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 church universal. Uh, creeds are are generally universal, like they're generally true for all Christians, right? Yeah. Especially when we're talking about the historic, uh, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed. Like when we're talking about specific creeds, there's a limited number, um, and they're and they're basically um, true for all Christians. Mm -hmm. And um, whereas, like you said, a confession is usually for a denomination or a church. Uh, here's what we believe, and, and so so when the 1689 was was published in in 1689, it was written before that. But when it was published, it made legal in 1689. The Baptists of of England were trying to say to um, especially to to the rest of the Christians and especially to the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists, they were trying to say 
we are just like you. We're not, we're, they were actually saying we're not Anabaptists. We're not the continental Anabaptists. We're actually just like you, except in these couple of areas. And so, so they were trying to say, here's how we are united. They were not trying to say, here's how we're different from you. Mm -hmm. They were trying to say, and, and, and the, uh, the Westminster, the, the, the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists accepted that, right? They, 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 by and large, they accepted that to say, um, we acknowledge that the, that this group is, um, reformed in the same in a similar sense and that they're not the the anabaptists um yeah. which were very different radicals theologically yeah radicals anyway very good yeah, i'm glad, one of the I'm things glad we veered that, into this topic this is super interesting to me yeah it is one of the things that both creeds and confessions are, are tr hopefully going to do is going to keep a either a specific congregation or a denomination anchored to biblical truth and it's probably being written because there's some concern that it won't that it'll come unmoored and hmm. drift with the the current of the times off to a place where it's just no longer orthodox it's no longer no longer biblical anymore so you know you you're trying to resist the the way the winds are blowing these days, you know, whether that's in the 17th century or today, you're trying to say, hey, in this church, we hold that we believe that the scriptures say this, we hold to this at this church, we're not going to abandon this because we believe this is a faithful understanding of what uh, the, the Bible requires. This is what we do here or Which believe or teach. Yeah, so that so that's really good because in um, in the late teens, uh, so twenty, I don't remember what year it was, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, in that before nineteen, probably seventeen or eighteen. Um, it's kind of after the Obergefell decision, and our in our society started to kind of go a little bit haywire. Um, we as a church, so the first thing that we did was we made a statement, um, amended our our constitution, which is our our um, so our statement of faith which is our our confession we amended it with um a statement on marriage what is marriage very specific and one of the sort of initiatives that i started researching and and that we as a church started to work on was i wanted us as a church to be more rooted um confessionally so that we would say this is what we believe and that we would have a document that we could we could say, well, this is what we believe, and, and have it not be something that I wrote, you know, that 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 is so so that the the next pastor could come in and say, well, this guy was a wacko. I'm going to rewrite it again, you know, and it just changed, <laughs> right? We wanted we wanted to root it in something historic, and so that's that's where we ended up um, in, getting into the 1689 London Baptist confession, this, the second London Baptist confession, because we felt like it, um, most articulated who we are as a church. And it also anchored us in the past, right? It, it said th this, this is what we believe. So there's, there's the, the, um, uh, the confession itself is, is, you know, I don't remember 20 something um, articles that just mm -hmm. is a list of here's what we believe. Here's what we believe, what we believe about the Bible. Here's what we believe about God, about the 
um, the, the Godhead, what we believe about mm -hmm. God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Spirit, all the way through, um, so that it's not just it's not just our church in the middle of nowhere, Ohio believes this thing, but the church down the road, they seem to be pretty similar, but they believe something totally different, mm -hmm. but they all claim to be Christian <laughs> churches, but actually unites us with other churches in history and other churches in the world, in our nation, and um, not just in our nation. I mean, there are... Yeah. You know, it's a, the London Baptist, so rooting back into the the Reformation. Um, I think I felt like that was really important. That, especially as we pass into the next generation, right? We start thinking about like 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, um, that our church can say, actually, we haven't changed what we believe. The right. world keeps changing. The world keeps redefining, you know, sex and gender, and, and the world keeps redefining marriage, and and who knows what they're going to redefine next. We believe this. Mm -hmm. We have not changed because the Bible has not changed. We believe this is what the Bible teaches about whatever the topic is, and we have not changed our view on that. Yeah. I think it's important. Yeah. I, I think that's... Uh... There's something about the weight of history. Like we could sit down and write one, right? And and and, and it, you know we could just come up with something that's just brilliant, right? And it's just amazing. <laughs> but it's just us. Like who cares? Like we're not that big a deal. But if you, you know, what whatever's anchoring you to truth with something like the 1689, that mm -hmm. that weight of history has much larger links in that chain than if the three of us sit down and come up with something no matter how great it is that we come up with it could all mm -hmm. be true it could be great but that doesn't just carry the same weight and and the other problem is you know we could uh meet someone from some church in texas or california or somewhere around the world who also whose church also holds to the 1689 and just from saying that we have an understanding of how much we have in common as right. opposed to if the three of us write it well i gotta <laughs> go through and read the whole luck. thing and, and yeah. until i have some idea of what's in there yeah so it just it, it works better to do a historical confession if you can find one that you can hold to mm -hmm. yeah there yeah. is a, there is a time and there has been a time in history to where it's entirely appropriate to write your own confession and Lee kind of talked about this a little bit earlier especially um uh, coming out of the reformation when the the lights were coming on the gospel was starting to shine bright and um different parts of the world um particularly in europe uh as the reformation started to spread um there was there were different interpretations and understandings of baptism of um all kinds of different doctrines and um uh in those areas where they disagreed so they held reformed churches they hold fast to the nicene creed right they mm -hmm. hold fast to the to the 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 um the 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 primary uh first importance issues mm -hmm. and then have said okay but we need to write there is no document we can't we can't go on the past because the roman catholic church and the eastern church believe very different on all kinds of areas so we need to write our own and so there were there were um i've got a four volume basically encyclopedia so it's it, it's four volumes um of 
confessions from just the 16th and 17th century. Um, <laughs> tons and tons of churches. The age of confessions. <laughs> yeah. Since then, I think it's a little less important to write your own. Like, I think it was during that time as the Reformation and, and people were really yeah. searching the scriptures and trying to understand, trying to get it right, trying to apply those things to their own lives and churches. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was important for them to write those confessions. I think it's less important now uh, because they've done that yeah. work. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, which you is why they've so- gone with the history. And one of the interesting things about the 1689, which which largely borrows from the Westminster, but since we've been on the topic of the Trinity, one interesting thing about the language of the 1689 in its chapter on the Trinity was um, the the writers actually added um, more verbiage about the Trinity into that chapter than was even in Westminster, adding specifically language from Nicaea about essence and um you'll also see in some versions of it the word subsistence instead of persons and that subsistence uh is it dates back straight to the debates at nicaea too so they were intentionally saying we are in the nicene strain of christianity because even at that point there was an Aryan revival going on in europe as well and so instead of so instead of and to go back to your point about do we write something new, they were writing a new confession, but still the language they were adding was old language, saying we are continuing to fall in line with Christ's church over history. Just to but to remember that we're going to add this language to this existing language that we're already working with. And I think yeah, that's, that's doubt, too. always. I think so too. And when in doubt, always side with Santa Claus. <laughs> yes yes Definitely. exactly you don't get they don't get this the beat down <laughs> yeah safer safer especially if well, you have it, a glass jaw <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, any any final thoughts on this before we ascend the library ladder no ascend we shall yeah let us ascend steve would you like to go first sure i'll go first I did something a little bit different this week. It's not a uh, traditional book. It's 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 more of a workbook. Oh, it's the One True God by Paul Washer. Oh, so I, I thought uh, it, it's it's a it's a fill in the blank uh, workbook. It's something. It's it's heavy on scripture. You're gonna have to get. You're, you're gonna do a lot of Bible drill, but it's one that would I I think is would be interesting to do just as a personal study, or you could even do it with the, with the kids, or if you're a homeschooler, or, you know, assign it as a, almost like a, a Bible uh, study. It's, uh, it, it, there's a lot in there. I think it's a couple hundred pages. And it's just a lot of, uh, like I said, a, a workbook kind of thing where you're going to have to go through it with your Bible and and just do a lot of fill in the blank. And it's hopefully going to stir up in you uh, just thinking about who God actually is right at the beginning. There's a whole thing on the Trinity, you know? Yes. And uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not something you're going to go through in a month. Uh, you know, it's, it's pretty substantial, but it's just something a little bit different um, than a just sit down and read it kind of book. And for some people, 
you know, they might think, uh, you know, this is a good exercise to do with my family or by myself just to do something a little different. So. Very good. Very good. Dana, what do you have? So I, I picked one that you could just sit down and read when it'd be really easy. You could do it in one, one day, one sitting. There you go. (laughs) Uh, So I picked, uh, and actually I just changed it. I had a different one, but as we, as our conversation developed, I thought this would be a good one. I just read this um, Christ and Creed by Nate Pickowitz, uh, the early church creeds and their value for today. Um, so uh, Nate is a friend of mine. And so my, uh, my dad's a member of his church. And so um, uh, I have an autographed copy, but um, <laughs> so I, I preached up there uh, this summer and I got a free, free book. Um, so, but it's just, it's a really simple, it goes through, um, I think five of the really basic creeds, uh, three of which we talked about today, um, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, and he also talked about Chalcedon, the definition of Chalcedon. And then a real short chapter on um, several of the major confessions, the Belgian Confession, the 1689, the Westminster. Um, it's really good, and the importance of these things for the church today. I, I grew up in a setting that was... Um, we never said no creed but the Bible, but I think that's what we believed, yeah. and or at least assumed. I get that. And yeah, and and so the creeds and the confessions are newer in my understanding and and in my theological. Um, I don't want to use the word journey, so whatever a different <laughs> word is, um, uh, life and um, providential so, path. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, Christ and Creed by Nate Pickowitz, a super easy, um, helpful read. Uh, there's a few others out there that are real similar, but I found this one to be really quick and easy to read and helpful. Nice. Yeah, I, I called an audible as well. In fact, I went off camera to, to pick it off my shelf, but I'm going to I'm going to do my other book, too, because I really want to recommend it. Uh, and it's going to be very different from this one, but it is. The need for creeds. I feel the need. The need for creeds. <laughs> ah, the need for creeds nice. today by J.V. Fesco. I'm a big fan of Fesco. I really like his writing. I think he's really good on apologetics as well. Uh, this is a great, another very thin book. Um, and he he's a good writer. Uh, this is a really good kind of primer on the entire topic of creeds and confessions. Um, so heavily recommend that. And then this one, which I've been excited to recommend for a while, uh, for anybody who needs a little little poetry this time of year, "The Temple" by George Herbert. So this is the this is the Canon Press version. You can get this anywhere. I I can't remember if it's in the public domain or not. Um, back in the day, the day of the metaphysical poets, so like John Donne, for example, um, these guys were doing big high concept type ideas for poetry. Um, you know, still sticking with rhyme and meter, but not necessarily uh, doing the same uh, poetic genres of the past. This one is really cool. It's called The Temple uh, because he actually, uh, his poems in it are are named for parts of the temple uh, in the Old Testament. So as you're walking through the book, you're walking through the temple. And so he has different different poems about different aspects of the temple and and then make drawing comparisons and 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 stuff for uh, for the church today um it's a very interesting you know it is metaphysical poetry but it is not difficult really like this um 
for a little change of pace, if you want some some devotional poetry, a little Christian poetry uh, from one of the masters of the craft, you could not get better than George Herbert uh, in the temple. So. And fun fact, every poem um, is singable to the tune of We Built This City by Starship. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if you knew that about George Actually, that, that is true. You're right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And now that's in your head. You're welcome. Yeah. Yep. Of course. <laughs> uh, any final thoughts for the good of the order? No. All right. Well, bless the Lord bless you. Yeah, right on. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen. Amen.